0: Part 2. Chapters 18 and 19 of How I Filmed the War by Jeffrey H. Mallins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18. Filming at Pozières and Contalmaison Things from my point of view were slackening down. Plenty of preparatory action was taking place, and here and there small local engagements, but the fact that they were local made it very difficult for me to get to hear of them. None of the corps commanders knew exactly when or where the nibble would develop, or if they did know, they were naturally chary of giving me the information. On occasions, too, when I did know, I had not sufficient time to make my arrangements. I had to be content with scenes which unfolded themselves after the action had taken place. This was getting rather monotonous. The aftermath of one attack was to all intents and purposes an exact replica of the previous one, except that the surroundings were different. There was the return of the attackers the bringing in of prisoners the wounded the dead and to vary these scenes to make my pictures generally interesting required a lot of thought and a careful choice of viewpoint in the course of the push which began in july there were hundreds i might almost say thousands of incidents that to the eye were of enthralling interest but to have filmed them with the idea of conveying that interest on the screen would have been so much wasted effort even the kinematograph has its limitations. Over my head all the time like a huge sword hung the thought of British public opinion, and the opinion of neutral countries. They would accept nothing unless there was great excitement in it, unless the pictures contained such thrills as they had never seen before and had never dreamed possible. Once I had secured that thrill I could then, and only then, take the preparatory scenes depicting the ordinary life and action of the men and the organization which are necessary to run the war. Such scenes, interesting as they undoubtedly are, without that thrill would have fallen flat, would have been of no use, from the exhibition point of view, and I had always to bear that fact in mind. I have spent many sleepless nights wondering how and where I was to obtain that magnetic thrill, that minute incident, probably only 10% of which would carry the remaining 90% to success, one that would positively satisfy the public. I had been filming a lot of stuff lately, but when I looked through my list, excellent as the scenes were, many of which I would probably never be able to get again, they struck me as lacking thrill. That was what I required, so I set out to get it. The Australians had just captured Posierre and hearing that the Boches were continually strafing it, I decided to make for that quarter with the object of getting a good bombardment. If possible, I would also get into the village itself, where there ought to be some very good pictures, for the capture had only taken place two days previously. Posieres, then, it should be. Leaving my base early in the morning, I made my way through Becourt Wood and beyond, up Sausage Valley, why that name I don't know. The whole area was crowded with men of the Australian division. As there was no road I took my car over the grass, or rather all that was left of it. The place was covered with shell-holes. Driving between, and more often than not into them, was rather a tiresome job, but it saved several miles of tramping with heavy stuff. Sausage Valley during this period was anything but healthy. I was warned about it as I left an Australian battery where I had stayed to make a few inquiries. A major told me the place was strafed every day, and I soon found that this was so when I arrived. Several crumps fell in the wood behind me, and two on the hillside among some horses, killing several. If I saw one dead horse I must have seen dozens. They were all over the place. But everyone was much too busy to bury them at the moment. The stench was decidedly unpleasant, and the flies buzzed around in swarms. I soon had a couple of cigarettes alight. What a boon they were at times! After much dodging and twisting, I halted the car close to a forward dressing station. While I was there, several shells dropped unpleasantly near, and I could not restrain my admiration for the medical staff who tended the wounded, quite oblivious of the dangers by which they were surrounded in so exposed a position. I obtained several very interesting scenes of the wounded arriving. I waited a while to watch the Boche shelling before going over the ridge to Poziers, I could then tell the sections he strafed most. I would be able to avoid them as much as possible. I watched for fully an hour. The variation in his target was barely perceptible. On one or two occasions he swept the ridge. I decided to make a start after the next dose. Strapping the camera on my back, my man taking the tripod, we started off. There was a light railway running towards Contalmaison. I followed this until I got near the spot Brother Fritz was aiming at, hugging a trench at the side of a by-road. The bank was lined with funk holes, which came in very useful during the journey, and I had to seek their shelter several times, but the nearest shell fell at a junction between that road and a communication trench. Just this side lay a very much dead horse. The shell came over. Down I went, flat on my stomach. My man dived into a hole. The shell exploded and the next thing I remember was a feeling as if a ton of bricks had fallen on top of me. I managed to struggle up and make quickly for the trench, my man following, and you may be quite sure I took care that I was well out of line of the next before I eased up. Beyond a few scratches on the camera case and a torn coat, I was quite sound. I was told of a Hun battery of seventy-seven millimeter guns on the left-hand side of the valley leading to Poziers, so I decided to make for that spot. I inquired of a man as to the whereabouts of them. "'Well, sir,' he said, "'you may come to them if you keep straight on, "'but I shouldn't advise you to do so, "'as you have to cross the open. "'Bosch has a pretty sharp eye on anyone there. "'He knows the lay of the battery, and he just plasters it. "'You might get round a dead man's corner "'on the Contalmaison road. "'It's pretty bad there, "'but I think it's the best place to try, "'and once you are round the corner, "'you may be all right.' well which way do i take down this way then turn to your left at the corner the battery is about two hundred yards along on the hillside but man alive i said they're strafing it like blazes look they were too and eight inch shells were dropping wholesale no i think i will take the risk and run over the open are there any dugouts at the battery yes sir jolly good ones forty feet deep regular beauties evidently made up their minds to stay the winter "'Electric light, libraries, and beds with real spring mattresses. "'My, sir, but they were comfortable. "'And what do you think I found there, sir?' "'Heaven knows,' I replied. "'Well, sir, several ladies' fringe nets and hairpins.' "'The devil you did! "'Well, Fritz knows how to make himself cozy. With that remark we parted, Tommy having a broad grin on his face. "'You will see the place where you get out of this ditch, sir,' he called out. "'A shell has blown it in.' Strike off on your left, straight ahead. You'll see them in front of you. The shelling was getting very unpleasant, and I had to keep low in the trench the whole of the time. At length we reached the point where we had to get over the top. Well, come on, let's chance it, I said to my man. I saw the battery in the distance before getting over. Up we went, and Bending Low raced for the spot. On the way I passed several dead bodies, all boche, and numbers of pieces blown to bits by our shell fire. A whizz bang came over whilst we were crossing. Down we went into a shell-hole. Another, and another came over. Murderous little brutes they were, too. Seven of them. Then they ceased. We immediately jumped up again and reached our objective. Then, getting under cover of some twisted ironwork, which once formed the roofing of the emplacement, I took breath. Anyway, I thought. Here I am. In a few minutes I had a look round. What an excellent view of Posieres, about 800 yards away on my left. On the right was conte which had only been taken a short time previously. The Boches were shelling the place pretty frequently. I set up the camera and waited. Away on the opposite hill, shells were falling thickly. I started filming them and got some interesting bursts, both high-explosive and H.E. shrapnel. Now for Posieres. The enemy must have been putting 9-inch and 12-inch stuff in there, for they were sending up huge clouds of smoke and debris. I secured some excellent scenes. First Pozière, then Contalmaison. My camera was first on one, then on the other. For a change, Bosch whizz-banged the battery. I could see now why he was so anxious to crump it, for lying all around me in their carriers were hundreds of gas shells. I was, in fact, standing on them. They were all unused, and if Fritz got a good one home, well, good-bye to everything. One time I thought I would seek the shelter of a dugout, but the fire swept away in the opposite direction. By careful maneuvering I managed to film the German guns there. Every one of the four was quite smashed up. An excellent example of artillery fire, and by the date upon them they were the latest pattern. In all there were three batteries in that small area, making twelve guns, but out of the twelve sufficient parts were found intact to make one good one, so that Fritz would get some of his own back in a way that he least expected, for there were thousands of rounds of ammunition found in the dugouts beneath the gun pits. How to get into Posiere was the next problem. I had, while filming, been making mental notes as to the section which Fritz did not strafe, and that place, by all that's wonderful, was the actual thing he was undoubtedly trying for the road. By hugging the bankside along which here and there I could spot a few funk holes, I managed to get into the chalk pit. Here I filmed various scenes, but Bosch, as usual, kept me on the jump with his shrapnel, forcing me to take hurried shelter from time to time. There is one thing I shall always thank Fritz for, and that is his dugouts. If he only knew how useful they had been to me on many occasions, I am sure he would feel flattered. From the chalk-pit to Poziers was no great distance. The ground was littered with every description of equipment, just as it had been left by the flying Huns, and dead bodies were everywhere. The place looked a veritable shambles. Believe me, I went along that road very gingerly, picking my way between the shell-bursts. Just before I reached the place the firing suddenly ceased. The deadly silence was uncanny in the extreme. In fact, I seemed to fear it more than the bombardment. It seemed to me too quiet to be healthy. What was Bosch up to? There must be some reason for it. I took cover in a shallow trench at the roadside. Along the bottom were lying several dead Bosch, and a short distance away fragments of human remains were strewn around. The place was desolate in the extreme. The village was absolutely non-existent there was not a vestige of buildings remaining with one exception and that was a place called by the germans gibraltar a reinforced concrete emplacement he had used for machine guns the few trees that had survived the terrible blasting were just stumps no more fritz's sudden silence seemed uncanny but taking advantage of his spell of inactivity i hastily rigged up the camera and began exposing in a few minutes i had taken sufficient and packing up, I hurried down the road as fast as I could. I reached the chalk pit safely, and then, cutting across direct to the gun pits, I took up my original position and awaited Fritz's good pleasure to send a few more crump to provide me with scenes. But not a shell came over. Before leaving this section, I thought I would film Contalmaison, a name immortalized by such fighting as has rarely been equaled even in this great war. To get there it was necessary to go to dead man's corner. The road was pitted with shell-holes, and dead horses lay about on both sides. Bosch was still uncannily quiet. I was beginning to think I should just manage to get my scenes before he interfered with me, but no. Either he had finished his lunch or had some more ammunition, for he started again. One came over and burst in the village in front of me, with a noise like the crashing of ten thousand bottles. I took shelter behind a smashed-up limber and waited to see where the next would fall. It burst a little further away. Good enough, I thought. Here goes, before he alters his range. Jumping up, I ran and scrambled on to the ruins of a house, and took some fine panoramic views of the village, first from one position, then from another. Some of the scenes included a few of our men in possession. Altogether, a most interesting series, including, as it did, both Poziers and Comte it was the first time they had been filmed since their capture. At that moment I heard another crump coming over. It seemed to be unpleasantly near, so I made a running dive for a dugout entrance, from which poked the grinning face of an officer. "'Look out!' I yelled. Crash came the crump. "'Near enough, anyhow,' I said, as a piece flew shrieking past close overhead. "'Are you the movie man? I'm pleased to meet you,' he said. "'Did you get me in that last scene?' Yes, I said, proof's ready to-morrow, and with a laugh I hurried down the road. Chapter 19 Along the Western Front with the King That evening I reported at headquarters. Well, Mallon, said Colonel Blank, I have a special job for you. Will you be on the quay at Bologna to-morrow morning by twelve o'clock? Captain Blank is going down. He will make all arrangements for you there. He will also tell you who it is that's coming. Start at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. It is very important, so don't fail to be there. Leaving the colonel, I met Captain Blank outside. Who's coming? I asked. Don't know, he said. Tell you tomorrow. Is it the king? I asked. Well, he said, as a matter of fact, it is. He arrives tomorrow. I shall have the full programme in the morning and will give you a copy. What a film. My first thought was whether he would visit the battlefield. What scenes I conjured up in my imagination. To see Britain's king on the battlefield with his troops, to see him inspecting the ground, to see him in trenches lately captured from the Germans. My imagination began to run away with me. No, I thought, it will be just the ordinary reviews and reception. But I was wrong. The scenes that I had pictured to myself I was soon to witness. On the morrow the captain, the still-picture man and myself, left G.H.Q. for Bologna. Arriving at the quay I looked around for any signs of preparation, but the whole place was as usual. The captain called at the AMLO. "'Do you know what time the king is due?' he asked. The AMLO, in tones of amazement, ejaculated a long drawn-out, "'What? Never heard of his coming.' "'Well, he is,' said the officer. "'He's arriving at midday.' I was never informed, said the other. I will ring up the M.L.O. He did so, and after a short time the information came through. The King will not arrive to-day. He will be here to-morrow at 9 a.m. His sailing was altered at the last moment. That night I turned in at the Hotel Folkestone, making arrangements for my car to take me and my apparatus to the quay at 8.30 in the morning. The morning fortunately was beautifully bright. I sincerely hoped it would continue what excellent quality it promised in the films. I compared it with the weather during the last visit to France of the late Lord Kitchener. Unfortunately it rained all the time. I arrived at the quay. The French officials were gathered there, and lined up was a guard of honor, formed by the North Staffordshire Regiment. Every man had been through many engagements during the war. I fixed up the camera. The boat had already drawn up by the quayside. There was a hushed whisper from several officials standing by. There he is. I looked and saw the king gaily chatting to the naval officer in charge. I wondered whether his majesty would like being photographed, therefore I carefully kept my camera under cover of a shelter close by. At that moment the king's equerry came ashore. I asked him what time his majesty was due to land. Another half an hour yet, he said. The governor of Boulogne and other French officials are just going aboard to be introduced. I arranged some wheeled railings in such a manner that the opening was close by my camera, thereby making sure that the King would pass very near me. The moment arrived. My camera was in position. At that moment the King came down the gangway. He was in Field Marshal's uniform, followed by his suite, including Lord Stamfordham, Sir Derrick Keppel, Lieutenant Colonel Clive Wigram, and Major Thompson. I started turning as he stepped on the shores of France. He gravely saluted. Passing close by, he reviewed the guard of honor, giving them a word of praise as he went. I filmed him the whole of the time until he reached his car, bade adieu to the many officers present, and drove away to G. H. Q. I had made an excellent start. The landing was splendid. Now to follow. The king was going to G. H. Q., breaking his journey to lunch with Sir Douglas Haig on the way. I knew I should have ample time, therefore, to get well ahead and film the arrival at General Headquarters. Arriving at G. H. Q., I took up my stand near the entrance to the building. The Prince of Wales and other officers were there. I noticed that the Prince, as soon as he saw me, turned and said something to a friend nearby. He evidently remembered my two previous attempts to film him. His Majesty arrived. The Prince of Wales came to the salute. Then His Majesty, not as a king but as a father embraced his son i should have obtained a better view of that incident but unluckily an officer sidestepped and partly covered the figures from my camera i obtained many scenes during the day of his majesty visiting in company with general sir douglas haig various headquarter offices where he studied in detail the general position of the armies i noticed that sir douglas did not look upon my camera very kindly he was rather shy of the machine though latterly he has looked with a more sympathetic eye upon it. On the second day of the king's visit I started out and proceeded to an appointed place on the main road where the king's car would join us. The weather was very dull. It was causing me much concern, for today of all days I wanted to obtain an excellent film. The cars pulled up. We had about fifteen minutes to wait. I fixed up my camera ready to film the meeting with General Sir Henry Rawlinson while waiting the general came over to me and began chatting about my work i hear he said that you filmed the attack of the twenty-ninth division at beaumont amel on the first july and have been told of the excellence of the result he seemed much impressed by what i told him of the possibilities of the camera a patrol signalled the king's arrival his car drew up his majesty alighted and heartily greeted the general i filmed the scenes as they presented themselves all aboard once more the king leading we started on our journey for the battlefield of fricourt having hung about until the last second turning the handle it was a rush for me to pack and pick them up again my car not being one of the best i had great difficulty in keeping up with the party the news of the king's arrival and journey to fricourt seemed to have spread well ahead for everywhere numbers of troops were strewn along the roadside and even far behind as I was, I could hear the echoing cheers which resounded over hills and valleys for miles around. Finally the cars came to a halt at an appointed place near the ruins of the village and once beautiful woods of Fricourt, well within range of the enemy's guns. The spot where the king alighted was known as the Citadel, a German sandbag fortification of immense strength. It was arranged in the form of a circle, with underground tunnels and dugouts outs of great depth. In various sections of the walls were machine-gun emplacements, and the whole being on top of the hill formed a most formidable obstacle to the advance of our troops. I may add that the hill is now known as King George's Hill. The king and his party had already alighted when I arrived to set up my camera, and hurrying forward was very difficult work, especially as I had to negotiate twisted masses of enemy barbed-wire entanglements but eventually after much rushing and being very nearly breathless i got ahead and planted my machine on the parapet of an old german trench and filmed the party as they passed to keep ahead after filming each incident was very hard work it meant waiting here and there jumping trenches, scrambling through entanglements, stumbling into shell holes, and at times fairly hanging by my eyebrows to the edge of trenches, balancing my camera in a way that one would have deemed almost impossible. But I am gratified to think that I managed to keep up with the king, and I succeeded in recording every incident of interest. At a point on the hilltop the king halted, and General Blank described the various movements and details of the attack and capture of the village the king taking a very keen interest in the whole procedure. I continued turning the handle. I did not allow a single scene to pass. Such a thing had never been known before. Throughout it all the guns, large and small, were crashing out, and the king could see the shells bursting over the German lines quite distinctly. The guide, who was a lieutenant in the engineers, suddenly called attention to an old German trench. The Prince of Wales first entered and examined from above the depths of an old dugout. With a jump I landed on the other side of the trench, and sticking the tripod legs in the mud I filmed the scene in which His Majesty and the Prince of Wales inspected the captured German trenches. The party halted at the entrance to another dugout. The guide entered and for some moments did not reappear, the king and the general meanwhile standing and gazing down. Suddenly a voice echoed from the depths, "'Will you come down, sir?' this remarked to the king." His Majesty laughed, but did not avail himself of the invitation. All the party joined in the laughter, and all those who have seen that picture on the screen of His Majesty's visit to his troops will recall the incident to which I refer. Many of the London papers in their articles referring to the film wondered what the joke was that the King so thoroughly enjoyed outside a German dugout. The party passed on, but some difficulty was experienced when they tried to get out of the trench again. The king was pulled out by the Prince of Wales and another officer, but some members of the party experienced a difficulty which provided quite an amusing episode. At times I had to stop and change spools. Then the party got well ahead, and on several occasions His Majesty, with his usual thoughtfulness and courtesy, hung back and debated on various things in the trenches, in order to allow me time to catch them up again. His majesty passed over old mine craters, and stood with his deer-stalking glasses, resting against a tree which had been withered during the fighting, watching the bombardment of Pozières. He made sympathetic inquiries by the side of a lonely grave surmounted by a rough wooden cross, on which the name and number of this hero were roughly inscribed. A shrapnel helmet, with a hole clean through the top, evidently caused by a piece of high explosive shell, rested upon the mound the king stooped and picked up a piece of shell and put it in his pocket it was now time for his majesty's departure gathered near his car was a crowd of tommies ready to give their king a rousing cheer as he drove away i filmed the scene and as the car vanished over the brow of the hill three more were called for the prince of wales hurriedly picking up my kit i chased away after them on the way masses of anzacs lined both sides of the road and the cheers which greeted his majesty must have been heard miles away. The scene made a most impressive picture for me. At that moment a battalion of Anzacs just out of the trenches at Poziers were passing. The sight was very wonderful, and the king saw with his own eyes some of his brave colonials returning from their triumph, covered with clay, looking dog-tired but happy. His majesty was now going to view some ruins near the front. But unfortunately, owing to burst tires, I could not keep up with the party, and by the time I got on the move again it would have been impossible for me to reach the place in time to film this scene. Therefore, knowing that he was due at Number 18, CCS, or Casualty Clearing Station, I made hurried tracks for it. A most interesting picture promised to result. I arrived at the CCS and was met by the CO in charge. "'Hello, Mallins,' he said. "'Still about.' always on the go, eh? The last scenes you took here came out well. I saw them in London on the R.A.M.C. film. What do you want now?' "'Well, sir,' I said. I am chasing the king, and some chase too. My word! I lost him this morning when my old bus broke down. But up to the present I have obtained a most excellent record. Topping day yesterday on the battlefield of Fricourt. I wouldn't have missed it for anything.' Half an hour later the royal car drew up. THE KING AND THE PRINCE OF WALES ALIGHTED, AND WERE CONDUCTED AROUND THE HOSPITAL BY THE CO. I DID NOT MISS A SINGLE OPPORTUNITY OF FILMING, FROM HIS MAJESTY'S TALK TO SOME WOUNDED OFFICERS, TO HIS strolling THROUGH THE LONG LINES OF HOSPITAL TENTS, AND ENTERING THEM, EACH IN TURN. AT ONE POINT MY CAMERA WAS SO CLOSE TO THE PATH ALONG WHICH THE KING PASSED, THAT THE PRINCE OF WALES, EVIDENTLY DETERMINED NOT TO RUN INTO MY RANGE AGAIN, QUICKLY SLIPPED AWAY AND CROSSED HIGHER UP BETWEEN THE OTHER TENTS. "'An officer standing by me remarked with a laugh, "'The prince doesn't seem to like you.' "'A touching incident took place when the king was on the point of leaving. "'He stooped down and tenderly picked up a small puppy "'and gently caressed and kissed it, then handed it back to the colonel. "'This scene appears in the film "'and illustrates his majesty's affection for dumb animals. "'I had just finished turning when an officer came up to me "'and said in a low tone, "'That's funny.' "'What's funny?' I asked. "'Why, that incident? Do you know that dog only came in here yesterday, and he has done so much mischief through playing about that at last the C.O. determined to get rid of him? But we won't now. I shall put a red, white, and blue ribbon round his neck and call him George. He shall be the hospital's mascot.' Before I had time to reply, His Majesty prepared to leave. So... Running with my camera, I planted it in the middle of the road and filmed his departure amid the cheers of the officers and men of the hospital. End of Part 2 Chapters 18 and 19